This is the Value Investor Podcast with Tracy Reinick. All things value all the time. Welcome back, value investors. So I've been looking a lot recently at Warren Buffett and his historic moves, things he's done in the past, especially during the 1970s. And mostly I've been looking at all of this stuff because I am curious about what he was doing in the 1970s, you know, the last kind of big inflationary period that we had, especially given his recent moves in the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio. Kind of curious to see when he's owned energy throughout the years. So I've been going back to see, was he buying any in the 1970s? So I'll have an answer to that during this podcast. But I'm also doing another promotion at Zach's for the value investor portfolio that I run there. We're also doing a promotion overall on the Zach's investor collection, which includes the value investor and the growth, uh, the income investor, as we call it, which is the dividends. And there's also the home run investor in there. There's a couple different portfolios. You can see all of them. If you do the trial, the 30 day trial, it's a dollar. And I'll put the link to the promotion in the article for this podcast. But we do do these promotions every once in a while. We haven't done one for the value investor for a while. So I told our marketing guys, you know, now is the time because value is back in, right? Um, So that's why I've been looking around at Buffett and seeing what he's been doing and wondering, are there any tips we could follow from what he did in the 1970s? So we have to go back a little bit and remember what Buffett and even Berkshire Hathaway were doing in the 1960s into the 1970s, because it is, you know, 40 to 50 years ago now, and things are different now compared to them. So if you remember, if you're familiar with Buffett at all, you might remember that there was a period where he moved to the sidelines. So he had his own partnership, which was different from him being like CEO of Berkshire Hathaway and the Berkshire stock being out there. He had an investing partnership that uh, returned an annual return, which averaged 30% from 1957 to 1969 when he dissolved it. So keep that in mind. Maybe you didn't even know but he decided to get out of the stock market in 1969. And he said, he said over the years, basically, there was nothing cheap enough to buy. Growth stocks were surging. They surged all throughout the 1960s. But by the end of the 1960s, the valuations were really extreme. So back then, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, instead of the Fangman stocks or maybe even the ARK Innovation type stocks, there was a thing called the Nifty 50. I've talked about it before on older podcasts. You can go find it on on these podcasts. But those were basically companies with strong growth that were considered sure things. Doesn't that sounds familiar, right? <laughs> so we always have this period where everybody's like, these companies can grow forever. They're innovating. They're in this new technology. I want to own them. I must own them. And I don't care how much it costs to own them. So by the peak of the Nifty 50, many of them traded with PEs as high as 50 or even a little bit higher, 60, which back in that day was extreme valuations, right? But everybody, again, said, who cares? Who cares if I'm buying IBM Procter and Gamble, Xerox, Johnson and Johnson at 50 times. Cause look at their growth rate. 
they they're producing and they can keep growing like this forever. But as we know, that never happens. And eventually they uh, do come back down to earth, which is what happened to the nifty 50. Now, Buffett got out in 1969. He actually returned money to the investors in the partnership and said, see, ya, I'm, I'm going on a vacation. And then he did stay on the sidelines during the next uh, five years, almost basically four to five years. And in that time period, there was a massive bear market, the 1973-74 super bear, as it's called, because it did last through two years. The S&P 500 dropped nearly 50% during that period. And so the Nifty 50 came sharply back down to earth during that time period. Again, I'm I'm just bringing this up because it, it sounds like deja vu, right? So he was on the sidelines during all of that sell-off. But eventually, as we know, value investors start to take notice, hey, maybe things are cheap enough now. Maybe with all the bulls out that those of us who were on the sidelines can find some deals here. And in 1974, that's when Buffett got a bit giddy about what was out there. And he started buying, saying, you know, basically he was like a kid in the candy store and he couldn't get enough of buying stocks. But it was, it turned out, just the start of the golden era of value investing, which lasted throughout the 1970s. Stocks went to single digit PEs. But remember, you could get you know, a sky high savings rate in your bank account by the end of the 1970s as those interest rates rose. And you can also you could also buy a treasury for much higher rates, like into the double digits. So why buy stocks at all? So stocks really became out of favor. That's how you got the single digit PEs. So here in the 2020s, we're far from those levels in the bank savings accounts and the treasuries and all of that. Um, but we, we do have rising dividend yields, which they did have in the 1970s on some stocks. And some of those stocks here in the 2020s are now starting to look a bit attractive. We've talked about both the banks and the oil companies and their big dividends thanks to the weakness in the shares and for the oil companies, uh, record-free cash flows. And some of those uh, oil stocks have now pulled off, off their highs. Some are down over 20% here, just in like literally the last week. So you get another buying opportunity that's gonna push up those dividend yields even further. But I went back and I wanted to look at the Berkshire annual letters. So this is the chairman's letter as they called it. And I started in 1978 because apparently that was the year when Buffett started writing them in his more folksy everyman type of style. So it wasn't just like a technical reading of everything that was going on in Berkshire. It started to take on a tone of like teaching, and giving little tidbits about why they're doing certain things, why they bought certain things, you know, about their performance. And he does mention in the years I looked at inflation almost every year. Now, I decided not to really go deeply into what his thinking was on actual inflation, even though it is uh, really interesting and relevant to us today. Because I feel like I need to do a whole nother podcast on it because every annual letter I looked at, the inflation discussion got more intense. And so that's going to take up like a whole nother podcast. So stay tuned for that. 
But the Berkshire business back in that day was simpler. It didn't have as many different components to it, but you can still get an idea of where they were investing. So it had the big insurance companies. It had um, a bank. It had textiles because Berkshire Hathaway was a textile company. And then the insurance companies themselves that he owned had uh, equity portfolios. That's how they uh, invested the money from the insurance premiums in order to generate the money, you know, to pay it out if there were claims. So all insurance companies have to do this. And so it wasn't so much Berkshire Hathaway's holdings that were in it back then. It was the insurance company's holdings, which by definition go into the entire Berkshire Hathaway results at the end of the year. So in 1978, where I started, he talked about the prior three years being a bonanza period, as he calls it, for the insurance industry. And Berkshire per share net worth virtually doubled during that time, during the three years prior. It compounded at about 25% annually. But by 1979, when I took a look at that annual letter, the insurance cycle had turned downward and they were predicting, you know, the end to the good times of those 25% annual compounding. But again, the insurance companies themselves own the stock. And Buffett goes into a whole thing about saying he couldn't forecast short-term stock price movements, but in the longer term, he felt that the stocks would be worth considerably more. And in one of, uh, in I think it was 1978, he was talking about dollar cost averaging into the stocks, even if you know the overall stock market fell and the value of the stocks in the insurance company's portfolio sold, uh, fell, they were still willing to add more to their equities and dollar cost average. And in fact, they preferred that versus seeing those stocks, you know, really rally big because they were being greedy and still wanted to buy a lot at these cheaper prices. So by 1979, I took a look to see what the insurance stock holdings included, because again, Berkshire itself wasn't really holding the stocks. It was the insurance companies that were holding it. And they did have to reveal point and it did have to be put in the accounting books by this point um, with some new accounting rules apparently about which stocks they were owning. So there were some interesting ones on the 1979. They only had 13 holdings. One of them was Am Amaretta Hess, which I recognize because the Hess name is in there. And yes, it was an oil company. So in 1979, with the Iranian Revolution raging and crude surging, they did own shares of an oil company. So at that time, their their cost on the shares was $2.8 million. And at the time of the annual letter, the market price was $5.4 million. So they were doing pretty good on that investment. Then they also owned this company that I never heard of before called Handy and Harmon, and it was their largest holding by value. And so the cost there was $21.8 million, but the market uh, price was $38.5 million in 1979. And they were a leading precious metals fabricator and refiner, and the biggest one in the country by the late 1970s, because the precious metals, remember, rallied big time, um, including copper, even though that's more of an industrial use, but uh, silver, gold went to new highs in the late 1970s, but very volatile kind of in the 70s with the 
inflation pressures. And uh, but it was the best performing sector of the 1970s. Gold was. And so Handy and Harmon, not surprising, was a great investment for them. I did discover by like 1979, 1980, they bought a big plastics company um, out of Ohio. They made auto parts and they were trying to diversify away from the precious metals because it just was, you know, very volatile, even though they were making money hand over fit fists there, but they knew it wasn't going to last forever. In 1980, the Handy and Harmon investment, which they stayed in, remember, uh, they did not add to it. The cost was still 21.8 million, but the market price in that newsletter one year later was 58.4. So it had gone up from 38.5 million to 58.4. But interestingly, Amaretta Hess, that investment was sold by 1980, but Crude was also peaking at that time. So they sold out of that. Um, you can still buy Hess. It's not called Amaretta anymore. It's just called Hess Corp. And the ticker is HES. Now I looked them up year to date, up 39.3% because oil and natural gas. They also have midstream. They're not just US, they are global and they have other uh, production in Guyana and Malaysia. They're paying a dividend yielding a base dividend of 1.4%. I did not look to see if they were doing specials or share buybacks, but odds are yes, maybe to one or both of those things right now. But Yahoo was telling me their dividend is 1.4. So some of these... uh, some of these companies still exist in some form that they owned in the late 1970s. And you you can go out there and you can own them too. So that's types of companies that their insurance company subsidiaries was buying during this time period. Now, um, I do know from the later years that the insurance companies and the reinsurers that they owned when they were building their portfolios, they were their own managers. It was not Warren Buffett who was buying the stocks in there. I'm not sure what was happening this early in the game, but I know later on in like the, you know, 80s, 90s, the uh, CEO of that insurer had like investment professionals <laughs> picking the stacks at that point. So um, just keep that in mind too. But it's still interesting to see what they owned during this 1970s period. Then we see in 1980 that they also bought Cleveland Cliffs. That's familiar, right? CLF is the ticker. That cost was 12.9 million and the market price was 15.8 million. And they're, again, still around. Shares are down 24.5% year-to-date. They're the largest flat-rolled steel company in North America now in 2022. PE is just 3.1 on Cleveland Cliffs. I know a lot of people have been in and out of this one because they felt like with the commodities boom, it should do well, but it is down 24% year-to-date and dirt cheap there with PE of just 3.1%. Um, Okay, another thing that they owned in 1980 was R.J. Reynolds. And if that's familiar to you, that's because you're familiar with the tobacco companies. So they were the second largest tobacco company in the United States after Philip Morris. And they're now owned by British American Tobacco. So they're a subsidiary of British American Tobacco. That is still traded, ticker BTI. And they're pretty cheap, PE of 9.5, year-to-date up 14.7%. So some people are hiding out in the tobacco stocks. 
maybe similarly to 1980, where people were hiding out in them then too. Dividend yielding 6.9%. That could be why it's holding up pretty good because it's got that big dividend. Um, but R.J. Reynolds been in business since 1875. So they bought it at 8.7 million and the market price in 1980s newsletter was 11.2 million. So back in the day, people were getting into the tobacco companies during that high inflationary period. So uh, that's also interesting, right? Um, both are holding up fairly well in these inflationary pressures. Then I looked at the 1981 letter that was after Chairman Volcker was raising the rates, but inflation still stayed elevated for numerous amount of time. It takes some time for the inflation rate to come down even after he was raising the rates. So 1981, they still owned Cleveland Cliffs, RJR, and Handy and Harmon, but they did buy more of the RJR. They went in big there. Then their cost basis went up to $76.6 million. And the market price in the 1981 newsletter, 83.1 million. They also bought another interesting company on the transport side, uh, GATX, GATX, GATX. I don't know how they pronounce it, um, but it's been around for forever. They bought it in 1981. It's still around. And uh, let me look up what it's been doing. Okay, so... GATX, they're rail car leasing and services. And it says they're also a partner in one of the largest aircraft spare engine leasing businesses. And in December 2020, they acquired TriFleet, one of the largest tank container leasing businesses. So this is a leasing transportation company that's been real hot during the pandemic. Year to date, though, these shares are down 8.3%, but over the last two years, still up 55%. A little pricier than some other stocks right now. So that's probably why you can see it off of its highs, starting to pull back a bit. PE is still 16.2. So that's a little pricier, as I said, compared to some of the others um, on this list that are cheaper right now. But um, still not, not nosebleed by any means. They do pay a dividend yielding 2.3%. And they said their quarterly dividend has been uninterrupted since 1919. And as we know, Warren Buffett likes these old kind of standard, uh, you know, companies that are the building blocks that have been around forever. So even in 1981, they were buying GATX. And because we're still shipping things, we're still leasing those rail cars. And here in 2022, all these years later, we're still doing the same thing, right? We're still getting that dividend. So that's an interesting one to take a look at. I do like the transportation business. And now even Berkshire Hathaway owns its own railroad. So they don't, um, necessarily, you know, need to own one of these kinds of leasing, rail car leasing, because they got the whole darn thing and Warren loves the railroad business. So not surprising to see something like GATX back in the day. Um, okay. So, and also during this whole time, he owned General Foods for all these years in the portfolio. And that's not super familiar because that ceased to be in 1995. And it was merged into Kraft, which is now split up into two, into Mondelez, ticker MDLZ, sorry, MDLZ is Mondelez. And then Kraft Heinz, KHC is that ticker. 
and Kraft Heinz had the adjustments on its books and all of that stuff, the accounting issues. So that stock got slammed down. Um, Kraft Heinz year to date right now here in 2022, however, is up 3.8%. So some people kind of hiding out in these food stocks during this inflationary pressure because we have to eat. And dividend is now yielding 4.5%. So they're hiding out in it and they're getting that dividend. It's trading at 13.6 times. So it's not super expensive here. But Mondelez is a little more expensive here. They're trading with a PE of 20. Year to date, those shares are down 8.9%, which is better than the S&P 500, which is down a little bit over 20%, as we know. So you are still getting some outperformance, just not in the positive realm with Mondelez and yielding 2.3% here versus the 4.5% for Kraft Heinz. So they are, you know, slightly different businesses now. And so you got to dig in deep to see what's going on with both of those. And remember, what worked in the 1970s may not here in the 2020s, but I wanted to look back and see what were they buying, what was going on in that high inflationary environment. In the 1970s, the best performing sector was gold, and then you had materials and other commodities, which included oil, in the second best performers. So it's not surprising that starting in 1978, they had Handy and Harmon, which was the precious metals company, Cleveland Cliffs, Hess. Those are all commodity-based companies. Then they had some food uh, because you still have to buy that. And that's now represented by like Mondelez and Kraft. Then they started to add some transports there um, in the form of GATX, which is the rail car leasing companies. There was other companies on there. These aren't the only ones that were on the list. They always had the Washington Post investment over all those years. And uh, there was ABC, American Broadcasting Corporation, which is now owned by Disney, on there for 1978. And I think then it was gone. So then they sold that out of there. But uh, at in the 70s, Buffett had a big thing for media type of companies. And so he was in several of those, even if he was not the one making the decisions on those investments. Um, still, those were popular back in the day. <laughs> Uh, before, you know, all the changes have happened in media now with the internet. So this is well before the internet era. But it's very interesting to look back on all of these. Oh, I forgot about tobacco in there. That's kind of a standard. And that was a standard that many people kind of just had in their portfolio for many years because it always is one of the sin stocks. It always did well, even in recessions or inflationary periods, because you still had to buy it or or do whatever the thing was. <laughs> so that included like gambling, um, alcohol, tobacco, those all included in that category. And this one always uh, has paid fairly good dividends and tobacco in general has because they want to reward you for sticking around. And so American Tobacco BTI also has that nice yield right now, 6.9%, not, not too shabby at all, um, as long as you don't have an issue with owning tobacco in your portfolio. So yeah, it's interesting to look back. All of the annual letters are just online. Berkshire Hathaway has made those available. You can search by year 
and get each of the chairman's letters. Uh, I just searched starting in 1978 and there it is. Like I said, there's very interesting discussion in several of the letters about inflation and what it means for stock investors. Uh, basically, he said it was worthless to own any companies <laughs> when you're dealing with double digit inflation. Now, thankfully, we're not quite there yet and hopefully we won't be because the Fed is trying to crush it down. So let's hope that you know, 8.6 on the CPIs, the highest that we see, and we get that back down into the four to 5% range pretty quickly. And that still makes it very attractive to be buying companies and their stock. So let me recap what the stocks are that I talked about that are similar or basically the same from the ones in the 1970s that Berkshire Hathaway's insurance companies owned uh, a portion of back in the day during that high inflationary environment. So there was Amaretta Hess, which is just called Hess Corporation now. It is the same uh, energy company and the Hess family is still operating it apparently. So some things change, but some things do not. And the ticker there is HES. Then we had the food companies. General Foods is no longer around, but Kraft Heinz is, KHC is the ticker, and Mondelez is, MDLZ. Then we had Cleveland Cliffs. They're still around, ticker CLF. Then we had uh, RJ Reynolds, but they're a subsidiary of British Tobacco now, and that ticker is BTI. Then we also had a bonus stock that I wanted to talk about, which is GATX. That's the rail car leasing company. They are still around, have paid a dividend every quarter since 1919. Wow. Um, that one is the same as the, the company name. GATX is the ticker there. And as always, you want to be sure to get all of my podcasts because uh, who knows what I'll be talking about next week, but it likely will be something with value stocks. So you want to subscribe. You can get us on Apple Podcasts. You can get us on um, Amazon Music. We are on Spotify and on SoundCloud with the Zach's Market Edge podcast. That's two for one over there. And you'll get stock picks also on the Zach's Market Edge. But be sure to get us somewhere. And I'll see you again next week with some more value stocks. This material is being provided for informational purposes only, and nothing herein constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. Do not act or rely upon the information and advice given in this podcast without seeking the services of competent and professional legal, tax, or accounting counsel. Publication and distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and the information contained herein does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No recommendation or advice is being given as to whether any investment or strategy is suitable for a particular investor. It should not be assumed that any investments in securities, companies, sectors, or markets identify I've described were or will be profitable. All information is current as of the date herein and is subject to change without notice. Any views or opinions expressed may not reflect those of Zach's investment research as a whole.